save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. Mommy, why is the old man crying? I'm crying because the person I knew, the person I used to be, He's gone away, and I can't find him anywhere. He's just gone away, gone away. I suppose the best way to describe the Alzheimer brain is a prematurely rotting brain. Now, what I mean by that is that areas of the brain which are concerned um, with uh, sociability, intellect, higher mental function, this sort of thing, uh, these regions of the brain uh, degenerate, and they degenerate prematurely. That was Brian Leonard, Professor of Pharmacology at University College Galway, describing one of the greatest scourges of our human condition. A disease that, like a scorching wind, blows where it wills, mostly without pattern or logic, devastating individuals, families, and extended families. For, with Alzheimer's disease, it is not only the patient who suffers who is the victim. Very often, it is the carers who watch the slow process of disintegration in the loved ones who suffer most. Very often, it is the carers who are the real victims. After the initial stages, when insight into their declining intellectual performance may cause frustration and depression, the patients are, in a sense, beyond suffering. They have become non mentis, burnt-out cases, wandering, unknowing, in some great, arid wasteland of the mind. It is the carers, the husbands and wives, the sons and daughters, the nieces and nephews, the close friends, who must suffer the acute awareness of their loved one's condition. It is the carers who must exercise all the patience, tolerance and forbearance. It is the carers who must ensure that, until death brings the patient merciful release, the loving never stops. The Alzheimer brain is a rotting, decaying brain involving many, many different types of essential chemicals, chemicals which are essential for the life of the brain. Alzheimer's disease is irreversible and progressive. Until 1907, when a German neurologist, Alwas Alzheimer, first described the plaques and tangles that cause this degenerative process, the condition was known as dementia. Senile dementia in those over the age of 65, pre-senile dementia in those under that age. In the intervening years, extensive research has come up with many hopeful, albeit unsuccessful, approaches to the problem. Brian Leonard describes. 
Another approach, of course, is to try and prevent the occurrence, or rather the build-up, of these plaques and tangles, which are the pathological feature of the illness, and represent the death of brain cells. Can we prevent the, this chemical, the so-called amyloid protein, um, which appears to be abnormal in Alzheimer's patients, can we uh, prevent that from uh, building up and being formed? And again, a number of interesting uh, research studies have shown that at least experimentally one can do this, and hopefully it might have some clinical application in the future. And so that's the sort of way in which research is going. Research is, first of all, trying to uh, replace the defective chemicals, the chemical transmitters. Uh, secondly, to try and encourage those brain cells that remain in the Alzheimer's patient uh, to start sprouting again and producing the right sort of connections. Um, and thirdly, to stop the underlying pathological deterioration uh, where these abnormal proteins build up. Brian is pragmatic and sanguine about the ultimate outcome of these researches. Although that many of us have been playing around for years and years and years with, with uh, drugs, with chemicals, uh, which hopefully can uh, help to alleviate the symptoms of the illness and maybe prevent the deterioration, the rapid deterioration of the brain in, this, in, in, the, in the, these, these tragic patients, um, so far we have really come up with nothing, and I think we have to be very, very honest about this. There are a number of approaches, drugs which, for example, are supposed to increase the blood supply to the brain or increase the amount of glucose uh, getting into the brain. Um, these sort of drugs have been used, and frankly, there's very, very little evidence uh, that they work. Um, other drugs which affect the way in which the uh, brain cells respond to some of these chemical transmitter substances that I've described. Again, they've been tried, and by and large, they don't work. So at present, um, we, I think, are, are having to look at several approaches um, based on a fundamental and increasing uh, knowledge of our understanding of the way in which things happen in the Alzheimer brain. Uh, and hopefully um, one of these approaches in the near future is going to work. I'm optimistic in the sense that I believe by understanding the genetics, by understanding the pathology, um, that we might, might ultimately uh, be able to get a rational approach to preventing the deterioration of the brain. And I would see that happening within the very near future. Uh, but at present, we can't say which of the many approaches being tried uh, is likely, in fact, to succeed. Meantime, the relatives must face the day-to-day, -day, often insuperable problems of caring for the patients. Their only motivation, their only strength, love. But the hardest thing, I think, is to realize that the one you loved and married is no longer with you, really, because he's lost his memory and there's no conversation. You can't carry on conversation. And you go out somewhere and come in and you're dying to say, oh, I met so-and-so, I met a friend of yours and they were talking about you. But there's no point in saying it because they do not answer you or they can't take it in and they don't remember their friends. My wife was diagnosed as having Alzheimer's disease. I'd retired a couple of years before and was living comfortably up in the hills 
And then out of the blue, I was told my wife had Alzheimer's disease. I didn't even know what that was, but I soon found out. And after 17 years, she died, mercifully. It was an enormous relief because there was nothing left for the last couple of years for either her or me. In the end, she didn't even know who I was. The loneliness aspect is a major. People don't really realize you have a person whom you're totally responsible for and yet you cannot communicate with them. You cannot speak to them, you cannot tell them your day's events and they similarly cannot tell you what their day was like. Um, for me, this is a major problem as well. I find that I'm totally left to care for my mother, but yet... Um, I'm lonely. Being a carer on your own is something that I couldn't even begin to contemplate for myself. It must be almost impossible. The Alzheimer patient is unreasonable in many cases. They are children in more cases. They are cranky. They may in certain at certain times be incontinent. There is just so many, many problems associated with Alzheimer that the more people that can work with them together, the better. And the idea of the girl alone or the man alone, seldom the man alone, I must say, but the girl alone being left to mind her mother and father, to me, is the an absolute antithesis of what should happen. She can be very funny at times when she says she was singing a song one night it was the pale moon was rising above the green and uh, no, no, that's it. The pale moon was rising above the... What hell colour was that moon? <laughs> Things like that, you know. She can be very funny and uh, she sometimes she realises that she's going into this because she asks me occasionally, am I all right, Joe? You've just got the normal frustrations and we're all just human and certainly there are days when I feel oh, I shouldn't have said that I should have been kinder this morning but when you're under pressure it's very hard I suppose the hardest thing is even in this early stages you're seeing you're left really with the shell you have the person, you have the frame of the person, but you don't have the mind or the soul or the heart. Um, my children don't have their father. I don't have my husband. The downward spiral of the Alzheimer patient is described by Dr. Brian Lawler, old-age psychiatrist at St. James's Hospital and St. Patrick's Hospital. So let me take you through the stages of Alzheimer's disease from the beginning uh, to the end. The earliest symptom, of course, is memory loss, and this is usually memory loss for recent events. Uh, the patient can have uh, difficulty remembering what, en what, what went on today or in the last week, may have difficulty remembering names, may have difficulty remembering where he or she plays something. I met him on the stairs again this morning. He stood aside to let me pass. 
but he never looks at me or smiles, and I can hear him in my... 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 in my wife's room at night. Now, this stage can last anything from six months to a number of years, and the memory loss generally is, uh, comes on very gradually and uh, is progressive in nature. And this memory loss uh, in Alzheimer's disease does interfere with the patient's quality of life and with the patient's ability to function. And this is a very important point because that helps you differentiate between some of the normal forgetfulness that any of us can have uh, associated with the aging process. Oh, God. I'm always losing things. It's my hands, my other hands. I can't find them. Not these hands, my real hands. The ones I had before. The hands I used to touch things with. In the middle stages of the disease, the memory loss becomes uh, much more obvious. Um, also, the patient has more difficulty with language. They have, in addition to having word-finding difficulty, may have difficulty understanding uh, commands, may have a difficulty understanding um, conversations of other people, and has increasing difficulty expressing their thoughts and ideas. It's also in the middle stages that the behavioral complications become more of a problem. These uh, uh, include depression, anxiety, agitation, wandering, uh, psychosis, and uh, these can be very difficult to manage in the middle stages. In the late stages of the disease, the memory loss, um, it, there is, there's memory loss for recent and for remote events. Uh, the patient may have difficulty recognizing uh, very close relatives, uh, friends, even their own spouse. A woman came to see me today and she says she's my wife but she can't be. My wife Ma Ma can't remember her name now died long time ago. Who is this woman then? But for many patients and for their caregivers, the behavioral symptoms produce a, an incredible degree of suffering and are often the, the, present, the, the cause for these patients to be hospitalized or institutionalized and placed in nursing homes. The types of behavioral symptoms I'm referring to, of course, are symptoms like depression, anxiety, agitation, pacing, wandering. Uh, these patients often experience psychotic symptoms uh, such as hallucinations or seeing things that aren't there, hearing things that aren't there. They can also have false fixed beliefs such as delusions. Uh, one of the most common delusions that these patients experience, which was really related to their memory loss, is the belief that, they, that somebody is stealing their money or uh, taking things from them. It's the neighbors. They keep coming in and stealing things. My watch is gone and I found 
my trousers in the garden shed and the rake in my wardrobe. They become progressively more immobile um, and bedridden. And in fact, the cause of death in the late stages of Alzheimer's disease are, is most often secondary infections, either pneumonias uh, or kidney infections, because of the fact that the patient is just so immobile and bedridden. Alzheimer's disease is not a short-term illness. For the relatives and carers, the period during which the loving must be maintained can be quite protracted. Now, from the beginning, from the time that the patient develops the first symptoms of Alzheimer's disease to the very end, it can take anything from 2 to 15 years with a, a mean duration of illness of anything from t 10 to 12 years. So this is quite a long time during which the patient needs to be taken care of and supervised. So it's a very devastating illness. And in the, in the early stages and in the middle stages, um, what's most distressing for the caregiver and for the people that know the patient is that the patient can be physically in great shape, but because uh, of the, the, uh, the fact that they have uh, problems with their memory and often changes in their personality and changes in their behavior, the person isn't really who, who they are remembered by their, by their spouse or by the loved one. And it's very, very difficult for the caregivers and for the spouses to deal with, this, with the person who is suffering from Alzheimer's disease, particularly when their personality changes or, or when they, and, and, and in the, middle, very, the, the late middle and, and, and end stages where they don't even recognize uh, their loved one. There are 30,000 Alzheimer's sufferers in Ireland, most of them over the age of 65, but some as young as 50. And in isolated cases, the age is now as low as 40. However, as with epilepsy, there is no way of counting the sufferers exactly because they have not been diagnosed. Many families suffer in silence the trauma of caring for a cantankerous or difficult loved one, unaware of their true condition also unaware of the services and aids available once the condition has been diagnosed. The help of a well-informed general practitioner sensitive to the symptoms of the disease and the needs of the sufferer is essential. Dr Eugene O'Connor is just such a GP. The first thing, I suppose, would be to uh, assess the mental score, and that's a very simple test, 1, one to 10 and uh, on a person's uh, ability. And then to differentiate between uh, uh, Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. And if I cannot make this diagnosis myself, I will refer the patient to the psychogeriatric unit for a proper uh, diagnosis. Having had the diagnosis uh, confirmed, uh, the biggest problem is to speak to the relations and the family. The diagnosis can be quite a shock to the family, and this takes a fair amount of counselling to recognise that their mother, their father or their loved one will not be 100% again. Uh, we will need certain adjuncts towards their way of life, because uh, the best place for people with Alzheimer's is in the family environment and in the place that they are used to. They know where they 
bathroom is, they know where their kitchen is, and they know where to eat and where to sleep. And a disruption of any sort is going to uh, speed up or impair, or further their impairment of, uh, of their Alzheimer's. Now, the next thing is the ongoing care. And for this, we have to have uh, a very good relationship and liaison between the family, their family doctor, the uh, local nurse, and the local units who can take in uh, the patients for help during the day and at uh, holiday time for respite care. Um, also to uh, let the family know that there are some medications which will help the patient to get through the night uh, without being too disturbed and that they can wake up without a hangover in the morning. Until recently, the care of people suffering from any form of dementia, Alzheimer's disease included, was very institutionally based. That has now changed and the Department for Health is setting about providing a whole range of services at both community and secondary level. These are designed to allow sufferers to remain in their homes for as long as possible. There are two reasons for this. One, the sufferers prefer to remain at home, and two, they do better in familial surroundings. The prime aim is to provide professional backup services for both patients and carers. Dr Margot Wrigley is a psychiatrist with the Eastern Health Board. She heads up the North Dublin Old Age Psychiatric Service. It's based on the principle of domiciliary assessment, which basically means that when a patient is referred by their family doctor, one of the psychiatrists on the team goes out to the person's home and sees them there. And the advantages of seeing someone with dementia in their own homes are, first of all, it can be very difficult to get a person who's suffering from dementia and confused to an outpatient department. They may not have the transport to get there. They may not even want to go there. And when they actually arrive in the outpatient department, because they're in a strange place, they may appear to be more confused than they actually are, so you don't really get a proper assessment of the degree of dementia that they have. The other big advantage is that you can have a look around their home and see how they're coping, because people with dementia do lose their self-care skills. So, obviously, always with their permission, um, I would always ask, could I see the house? And if they're living on their own, an important part of that would be looking in cupboards and fridges to make sure that there's enough food or they're cooking food or there's enough food coming into the house um, and they're looking after themselves properly in that regard. While most of Dr Wrigley's work is in domiciliary care and assessment, liaising with GPs and the families of Alzheimer's sufferers, she also works with sufferers in hospitals and nursing homes. And another case that we saw a couple of years ago um, I think illustrates the importance of knowing about the patient's background history, and you can only know this if, if you take the trouble to go into it carefully. This was an elderly man who was almost blind and living in a nursing home, and we were asked to see him because, though he'd been confused for some time, he had become more so, and he had all of a sudden picked up a television and thrown it across the room. And obviously the people running, in, running the nursing home were very frightened by his behaviour, as were the other residents. We went and assessed him in the nursing home, and it turned out that he did have dementia, but he had also developed a urinary tract infection, which had made him more confused than usual. Now, the relevant fact in his background was that he previously worked in Dublin docks as a stevedore, and when he became more confused, he thought he was back on the docks, loading ships, hence the throwing of the television. 
So being able to uh, explain this to the people running the nursing home meant a huge difference to them. They felt that they could continue looking after him. And obviously we also discussed the case with the GP who organised uh, antibiotic treatment for the man, so his level of confusion returned to its previous level. The Alzheimer's Society of Ireland is a voluntary group set up by dedicated relatives and friends of Alzheimer's sufferers. Its primary aims are to give support and help to affected families, provide information on help available through social services, initiate and encourage the setting up of support groups nationwide, provide both daycare and long-term care centres, and promote research into the disease. Michael Coote is chairman of the society. His wife, now deceased, suffered from Alzheimer's disease for many years. We are doing a great job with an enormous amount of voluntary help and with money other than statutory money. And we're not really getting the support that we, just, that we, we deserve considering the number of people who are affected from several government departments. The Department of Social Welfare carers' allowances are totally inadequate for the situation of Alzheimer carers. Department of Justice, we're still waiting for them to implement the enduring powers of attorney, which is so vital if the breadwinner is the victim of Alzheimer's disease. Department of Health, well, there's so much that they should be doing, and the various health boards around the country. We need more daycare facilities, because Alzheimer sufferers require specialised daycare. They can't just be put into any old daycare centre. So we need more help in continuing establishing, as we have done already, seven daycare centres around the country. But the local health board should be doing more to get this going. And then we need more respite beds to give the carers a night off or perhaps a short holiday. Some of them have even had a day off for ten years because it's looking after a patient is a 24-hour day, seven days a week. And then more long-stay residential care for the patients when they get beyond the care of their loved ones at home. And again, they're not nearly sufficient of these. And at present, we're only getting ad hoc grants from the Department of Health and the Department of Social Welfare for specific items, mostly capital expenditure, we do need continuing financing so that we can plan a proper program ahead for the benefit of these unfortunate carers. Winifred Bly is National Coordinator Respite Care for the Society. She too has a special commitment, having nursed her sister through many years of suffering from Alzheimer's. But it's only a bit of help they want. They don't really want to relinquish or let their relative go anywhere. And uh, what we try to do for them is we try, first of all, to talk with them. And they love, actually, if you like, to let off steam by maybe talking for an hour on the telephone, just telling us what's happening to them, uh, how they feel, uh, what they would like for their relative, and that that care isn't there. And then one of the things in the society what we're particularly anxious to do is to provide that care for them. And respite care now is what I'm interested in particularly. And respite care is substitute care. It means somebody may come into the house and let somebody out to get their hair done. 
or it means that we might set up a daycare centre or something of that nature where a patient can come and be cared for in a nice, friendly, homely atmosphere so that the rest can go away and literally say, I'm delighted that they're there. I'm happy they're there. I don't mind leaving them there. I visited one of the daycare centres to talk with some of the relatives. Before talking with them, I enjoyed a sing-song with the patients. Various therapies have been tried with them, but only this music therapy seems in any way beneficial. First, they danced to some very lively music. And then they sang, and I marvelled at how well they remembered the words of songs they must have first learned 40 or 50 years ago when some of them could not, quite literally, remember their own names. Afterwards, I had some of the relatives and carers talk to me about their problems. He's now 50, just 50. It's three years since it first we've had the first symptoms. It started with a bout of what I was, you know, what I would call paranoia. That led to the first investigations. At such a young age. Of course, at 47, Alzheimer's was certainly not the primary uh, diagnosis. It took a long time. In fact, it took over two years before a final diagnosis of Alzheimer's was made. This was in uh, December of last year. He would imagine, you know, voices from the radio, messages, (coughs) sorry, messages off the television, messages from the newspapers, um, all being directed at him. Um, I was lucky in the sense that most of the ideas he had were he were pleasant ones. He imagined things like we were going to go on a voyage, nice holidays. There was nothing sinister in his paranoia. The fully healthy Keith would never sit into the car and allow me to drive him to the the Alzheimer's centre. He would simply refuse point blank. Um, He will say some mornings, well, I think I'll go to work today. And I'll say, well, we're going to, you have to go to the centre. And then he will sit in the car and he will come to the centre. Um... There are so many aspects uh, of him that have changed. For instance, he's a, he's a smoker. And I have to be extraordinarily careful because he can drop the cigarettes and matches and so on. I mind his cigarettes and he would actually chain smoke if he had the opportunity. And I will hand him a cigarette and say, you can have another one in an hour's time. A well person would not accept that. 
suddenly she came down the stairs one day and she was dressed from the outside in and that was the start of it. First time I really recognised that she was the way the Alzheimer's had set in more or less and after that she sort of slowly went down the hill and went deeper and deeper into it. For a time you think she was getting a remission but not really. She would drop back again into it and ah, she's happy with herself. She sings and what have you, you know but She's not herself at all. She used to be a very, very efficient nurse in the days when she was young, you know, and she was a really very capable person. Now she's... Well, of course, she's blind too, which makes it even worse and partially deaf. So it's, She's living in a little world all of her own, like, and uh, she, she depends an awful lot on me because any time... She's always, hello, hello, and uh, you're there, Joe, sort of make sure that there's somebody around. Sometimes they latch on to a phrase and they keep repeating the same phrase from the time they get up in the morning until perhaps they go to bed at night. And it's something like, um, oh, what'll I do? And that goes on all day long and there's really no answer to it. And to try and... yourself not to get too down, depressed about it but just to realise that they don't realise themselves that they're repeating the same thing over and over again. Sometimes you have difficulty at night uh, with they won't go to bed and get undressed and get into bed. And I think really we have to just not worry about things like that. And if they don't want to get undressed or still want to get into bed, to let them do it rather than trying to fight against it because if you argue with them it doesn't get you anywhere and you only get upset yourself so I think that's one of the things to try not to argue with them and if they do things the wrong way around well sure it doesn't matter that you let your friends and your neighbours and your family know that your loved one has Alzheimer's disease because when they know what's wrong, neighbours and friends are great. They help a lot, and we need them to help us along. Another thing, too, is to realise that the person you're caring for doesn't realise that they're being awkward and not doing the things you want them to do. And try and keep in mind all the good times you had and all the good days that you've had too um, another thing too I think we want to do is to prepare ourselves for the time when we can't care for them any longer and they must go in for, for care in a hospital or in a home and I think that's one of the hardest things to try and realise that someday we won't be able to look after them the way they should be looked after. And I think that that's one of the things we want to sort of start and think about because it's very hard to let the one you love go away from you. But you must realise the time comes and you can't mind them yourself. The Alzheimer's Society is very conscious of the fact that, despite its best efforts, there is very little positive government policy to help cope with the problem. 
Winifred Bly. We would love to see a, a proper government policy, a proper government policy, a thought-out policy, looking at all the aspects and looking, as you say, more and more people are going to be diagnosed. We're all living longer. It does increase with age. It, while it's not a natural part of ageing, it does increase with age, there are going to be more and more people needing facilities. The facilities are not there. Now, we as a society are doing what we can. We're pushing up daycare centres. We're going to put them all around the country if we can. But the government should have a policy, particularly for long-stay care, which is what most people come to in the end. And long-stay care is, we can't provide that. Somebody's going to provide it. Who? In the absence of any government involvement in the provision of long-stay residential care, the Eustace brothers, Dr Dennis, a psychiatrist, and Michael, an administrator, opened the ultra-modern Alzheimer's Care Centre on the Swords Road on May 17, 1991. This is part of the Highfield and Hampstead Hospitals complex, which has a long tradition of psychiatric care by several generations of the Eustace family, dating back to 1825. The unit is privately run, and there is a weekly or daily fee for either long-term residential care or daycare. The centre is custom-built for Alzheimer patients. Michael Eustace explains. Based on a theory known as the racetrack principle, the corridors tar patients naturally and gently, without needing sedatives, and ensure they stay safely within the interior of the centre, free from boredom and with the illusion of freedom created by an open courtyard. Daily activities are supervised and assisted where necessary. For the Alzheimer patient, such activities as washing, dressing and dining can be difficult. The occupational therapy programme changes hourly, whether consisting of reminiscence therapy, music therapy or something as simple as making jigsaws. A music specialist comes into the centre to organise sing-songs. The centre is designed to take care of those in the early to intermediate stages of the disease. This involves recent memory loss and the ability to communicate, however confused. Dr Dennis Eustace. Well, here in the Alzheimer's Care Centre, we run a support group for the carers of Alzheimer's patients. These people I would classify as the walking wounded, the covert sufferers, the other victims of the disease. And they come from all walks in life, both young and old, brothers and sisters, and even friends. And they've all one thing in common. They wish to help in any way to preserve the dignity of the patient with Alzheimer's disease. But unfortunately, as a consequence of the harsh realities of this disorder, the patients, the, the relatives themselves, fall victim to the emotional consequences of the disorder. I attended one of the carer group meetings and was very impressed with the interchange of ideas and experiences as husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, relatives and friends all helped each other to cope. Some of them talked to me about their coping. My mother is now 64 years of age. She began to suffer at the age of 58, which is quite young. And naturally, it came as a big shock to the family. My father cared for her down the country um, until his death just over two years ago. Um, after my dad died, I took my mother to live with me in Dublin. 
this was a major step and at the time I really didn't know what exactly I was letting myself in for. For starters, um, I'm a single girl. Um, I have no family in Dublin. And the first thing to go was my independence, which was a major aspect for me. I really resented losing my independence. I became totally dependent on other people to help me out with my mother. And initially, I found it very, very difficult to ask for help. I do now, occasionally, I allow my friends and uh, other people help me out. And they sit with my mother to allow me out. But again, there's always a watch at the clock. I have to get back because I know my mother is waiting there for me. My mother cries a lot. She cries if I receive a telephone call. Perhaps it's because she doesn't understand that I'm speaking with somebody else. I don't know. I ask her why she's crying. She doesn't seem to have an answer. I see my situation as a, as a reversal of roles. I now being the mother and my mother going back to her childhood. She likes her certain little comforts at night. She takes her discs to bed with her. I like to make sure she has the little comforts she requires. Sometimes my mother calls me mummy, particularly if she wakes at night. She calls me mummy and then I must take her out to the bathroom. She never knows when she really wants to go to the bathroom. I just have to guess, just as you would with a child. Another worried about the heredity factor. My God, am I getting to be like my mother or my father? Will this happen to me? Will this awful thing happen to me? Will I end up like this? And there is a degree of hereditary Alzheimer being discussed at the moment and it's a very scary thing well I leave notes all over the house well I forget to look at my diary even though I have written down ten times I must go to my meeting at five o'clock this evening well I forget to cook the dinner tonight the way my mother forgot for the last year and we wondered why she was getting so thin well I forget to eat the dinner that I have cooked tonight because I think I have already eaten some of it and I am unable to finish it, I am just full. All of these things are just thoughts that flash through the minds as you are a carer. Ethna Greeley, sister in charge of the Alzheimer unit in St John of God Hospital, Stillorgan, is very sympathetic to the plight of the carers, the relatives, the ones who have to ensure that, during the victim's living death, the loving never stops. It's very difficult for relatives to come in here to visit. Uh, because the person that they knew is really gone and is just a shell, a shell of the person. And I think this is where uh, you see the bereavement very much. Um, it's no easy decision to make to have your relative um, come into a psychiatric unit um, or indeed to any, to, even to a nursing home. It's very difficult to part with your husband or wife and... Um, you know, to, to, have, to have to make this decision for them. And the, you only have the shell of the person, and indeed the bereavement has started before you ever come in here, and it continues. And then when the patient dies, you have another bereavement. Somewhere in my researches, I came across the statement in some medical paper about the final stages of Alzheimer's disease. The sufferer 
loses the ability to smile. But, the report added, with great effort, they sometimes manage a grimace. My head is heavy. Keeps falling down all the time. My face is stiff, and it's difficult to... to smile. I wonder... wonder if... If they know... Look, Mom, the old man is smiling. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Saving money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Saving money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save 